Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here with our guest today, Dr. Ryan Nash, who is a palliative care specialist physician and director of of bioethics and ethics education at the Ohio State University Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, One of his specialties being in palliative care, I think it makes him especially well qualified to talk to us about our subject today, which is assisted suicide and its impact on the practice of medicine. So Dr. Nash, also a native Texan, uh, which having grown up in Houston myself, is, is great. So it's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. For Thank this. you for having me, Scott. Enjoy. So tell me, um, you know, just in general, how does your Christian faith inform your work as a physician and your work in bioethics? Well, I think uh, right now in medicine, um, there's a lot of traction on a concept of moral distress and burnout, um, compassion fatigue. Um, I, and I, these are, it's common. I think it's a misdiagnosis. Um, what moral distress really is, it was defined in war when uh, soldiers were told to kill or uh, drop napalm on this village. And it was something they knew was wrong, and they had to do it under orders. Um, I don't think that's what nurses and doctors are experiencing. Um, I think they're experiencing the reality of sin and death and suffering in the world, and it impacts their soul. Um, for non-believing uh, physicians or medical health professionals, it's hard for me to understand how they do what they do without faith. When we get seasick, we're to look to the horizon. If there's no horizon... You're just tossed and to- uh, tossed to and fro. Seasick all the time. You're seasick all the time. Um, so I think uh, one thing that, especially dealing with patients with advanced illness, um, without the hope of Christ, without uh, the the uh, the reality of, uh, of the soul, with that reality of what death brings, that it is our birth into into true life, um, if we're united with Christ. Um, Without that mooring, I, I don't know how one could be a physician. There are challenges, and I think that leads to the second part of the question. And the challenge is we're in a greatly disoriented medicine. Really, uh, uh, a medicine that uh, really, it's hard to say if it was ever really oriented in a truly Christian way, but it was it's great, obviously increasingly um, not Christian or even anti-Christian. Um, that um, makes it difficult, uh, sometimes being a Christian believer. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. very much uh, that's central in my life. Um, the, that when we're, so in doing medicine, sometimes I feel constrained that I can't do all the things that I'd like to. I can clear. I can like be, like, like what? I can be clear on the proscriptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'll, ne- I'll never pr- practice in assisted. I'll never participate in assisted suicide in euthanasia. I would never participate in abortion. I would never uh, participate in gender reassignment. I would never uh, affirm sin, as such. Uh, but prescriptively, I think the Christian faith can offer even more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that you cheaply proselytize someone who's suffering and dying. But proselytizing doesn't have to be cheap. Sharing the hope that's within us, sharing that uh, there's a need for repentance, that there's a need for contrition, 
that uh, prayer on our lips as we die is to be, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm -hmm. And that the reality of meeting God uh, when we die, um, I, I often feel constrained by secular medicine that I can't share in greater abundance. And I think I do more than most. Uh, my palliative fellows often will comment um, after I, I go into, uh, with permission, I go into depth with my patients on their, their, their faith and um, how that's important to them. And I'm, I've had sessions where I'm prescribing psalms um, mm -hmm. for them to pray. Um, and my fellows, um, usually non not Christians, will are just stunned. You know, what is this? But they don't. They can't find fault because I had permission, and that's yeah. the, the the great uh, um, secular ethical principle. So is you're prescribing permission. psalms on your prescription pad and writing writing it out in your Something in your like non legible that. physician's yeah. handwriting. Now it's all on the computer. Like but it usually does make. I mean, I, sometimes I will make a little note, and I don't prescribe psalms. I mean, I don't want people to think I'm overly righteous. But um, th things like that. If we look at if we look at the long history, the Christian tradition of medicine um, before the modern era, before the Enlightenment. If we look at the unmercenary Christian saints, I mean, they healed with medicine, with the, mm -hmm. the best medicine of the day, largely Galenic medicine. They used they had surgery, not in the kinds of technology we have today, but they did heal using those um, more mundane means. But they also used prayer and liturgical rites and anointing and, um, and confession. And most of them were priests as well. Not all, but many were priests. And they healed even miraculously. That's a history that's largely unknown um, in contemporary culture. But I long, when I read those lives, I long for something that would be... When I think, one of, the issue, one of the questions I have in my scholarly work is what is Christian medicine? What will it look like? How would it look different? than a secular medicine. I, the proscriptions are clear. We're not, not going to, we're not going to kill. Um, but the prescriptions are harder. How do we encourage um, how do we encourage those that are hurting to be united with Christ? And give, yeah. them, and give them real hope. And give them real hope. The, bring them to the true healer without it just being a simple, cheap, intellectual ascent. Mm -hmm. That it be something that actually tangibly changes them. So how do I deal with bioethics? Well, I try to do it on both ways. Uh, I mean, at both levels. We have this secular level where I, I want to be honest as I am a clinical ethicist and the ethics committee chair and the head of ethics for a secular public university I describe bioethics as it is, um, and professional standards, legal standards, community standards. Um, I describe it as it is. And often if I'm doing a clinical ethics consult, I may be giving guidance saying it's at that level, this modus vivendi, this way of life, this way of, the way of peace among disputing parties. Um, I can describe what's common in the practice. While foundationally, I know there's more. Um, now, I try to influence that modus vivendi. Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. I'm, I, I, sometimes I feel duplicitous or schizophrenic in the true meaning. Mm -hmm. But I try to influence it in, in, in ways subtle and not so subtle. Um, but I, I, I engage doing, doing bioethics at both levels. On one level, doing the ethics that's at, that is at law and policy and public and community standards professional standards 
and then longing for and um, arguing for a better ethic that's normative or foundational. Um, so I, I, tr I try to do engage both. Okay. Yeah. Ryan, you're a palliative care physician, which for our listeners who aren't familiar with that term, means you're a pain management specialist. Right. And you deal with a lot of people at the end of life who are dealing with pain, in particular end-stage cancers, things like that. How do you understand the Bible's teaching on the end of life and our obligation to patients at the end of their lives? Well, I think, um, uh, you know, the Bible with medicine is largely, uh, I mean, I think there's more corrections of medicine, more examples of, you know, this woman with a flow of blood spent all of her money on physicians or, I mean, it's often... Um, um, medicine did this, and now you've come for true healing. But I don't think um, in the in the Christian tradition, medicine has not been um, has not been eschewed. It it is permissible. I do think it's optional in the contemporary standard. Um, if a Christian wanted to forego medicine, I think that would have to be done with spiritual counsel and guidance, and it would have to. It needs to be uh, assured that they're not doing it for selfish purposes or for being in the throes of despondency or depression. But if uh, longing for, um, uh, even though death is a great consequence of sin, general sin, um, the acceptance of death and longing for life in Christ that we're birthed into true life, um, St. Ignatius of Antioch, when he's, you know, this is someone who's taught by the Apostle John, <laughs> the theologian, um, you know, contemporary of Polycarp and Clement. Um, uh, when he was going to Rome to be martyred, uh, he wrote to the Romans, the Christians in Rome, and said, if you can stop this, don't, because I'm about to suffer the birth pangs of life. Mm. He saw his death... Mm -hmm as birth pangs, which are a consequence of the fall, um, you know, the, 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 right. the, uh, the birth pangs of entering the true life. This isn't some sort of Gnosticism. This is entering in the true life, that this life, this biological life, um, where body and soul are one, um, is in preparation for uh, the, uh, the birth pangs, which is death and the separation of soul and body, then the reunion of them mm -hmm. In the resurrection. resurrection. Um, this life is for preparation. I think that's the Christian view, is this life is for preparation. I do think we can use medicine to bring, um, St. Basil the Great in his long rule 55 says, we can use um, medicine to bring longer life and better life. This is a bad paraphrase. Um, but we should, once the, the person is consumed by illness or the treatment of illness and is distracted from Zoe or the spiritual life, um, then we should set medicine aside. And I think that well, that's fourth century wisdom that is lost often today, where we have this in the culture war theme, or if, we've used, if we do the, have the mistake of viewing end-of-life issues through abortion politics, I think we can um, fall into ditches on either side of the way that is um, uh, known in the Christian faith. So one ditch being dis discarding the sanctity of life and saying we can hasten death, we can cause death in assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, 
the other, or, or neglect, I would say, um, the other is uh, that because the culture of death that, that also in, uh, furthers abortion, um, we, we have to uplift the pro-life banner, mm-hmm. apply it to something that's not abortion, and say we have to eke every second out of biological life as possible, even if this means um, great burden or non-beneficial therapy or um, um, a treatment delaying death by hours, days, when we know that death is coming and is inevitable. I don't think, I think that's a mistake, and it's a mistake that a lot of believing Christians, well-intended Christians make. Um, I don't think medicine has to be used um, in all circumstance um, to eke every second out of biological life as possible. I think it is wise to use when it can bring healing and recovery. I think it is appropriate to use in patients with chronic um, illness or even terminal illness to a point. Mm -hmm. But once medicine, once the patient's consumed with illness or the treatment thereof, I think it can be set aside. So the, the idea that death is a conquered enemy yeah. and need not always be resisted, and the idea that earthly life's not the highest good, it's a penultimate good. That's right. I mean, both of those sound like contribute to the, the, avoiding that, that vitalist extreme right. you know, at, the other, at the other end. Right. I mean, there's a there's a book that I don't I don't commend what's in it, but the title's pithy. Um, uh, that says uh, everyone wants to get to, uh, everyone wants to get to heaven, but no one wants <laughs> no one wants to die, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, so the um, yes, biological life is secondary to the spiritual life. Um, uh, in scripture, the the the, the the Greek term zoe is used, usually when not, life... Not bios. Not, not, not bios, or, yeah. Not biological life, but zoe, the spiritual or ongoing life, is the main ter- word for life. It's not the only one, but it's the main word for life. And we um, uh, are too dismissive of that distinction. Biological life has value. We aren't, we, we, we aren't Gnostic. Um, we aren't Manichaean. <laughs> um, we, are, we don't th- hold that... Um, uh, this earthly life. We know the, earl, the world is dark, but that's the powers and principalities of the world. Um, this world was created good. Um, it is fallen. It's imperfect. Um, we should long for resurrection and the eschaton, but uh, uh, it, biological life is finite, limited, and is not the ultimate goal. Life, um, the life that is more abundant uh, um, that they may have life and have it more abundantly is Zoe. It's the ongoing life, the spiritual life. Now, I take it that you're not a particularly big fan of physician-assisted suicide, either for moral theological reasons or to see it legalized. Right. Uh, wh- why not? Well, what's what's the problem? So, so multiple levels. I mean, the I think from the the Christian response should be fairly simple that it's illicit. It's just not consistent um, with anything that's been in Christian tradition. It's not consistent with Scripture. If you think of... Thou thou shalt not kill even by your own hand. Right. To use... uh, I mean, the Texan would add a little asterisk and say, unless someone deserves a good killing, right? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the... the, um, Which Scripture also says in different ways. Um, Now, that aside, whether that's true in the... God's prerogative. Yeah. Whether whether execution is permissible, I think, is a... Especially in a secular government, I think that's a harder question to ask. I say it tongue in cheek, but 
um, you think of even um, the Malachite man coming to King David, mm -hmm. saying that he saw Saul, King Saul, um, dying, and that with Saul's uh, request, he took Saul's sword and ran mm -hmm. him through. And what is the uh, King David's response? Not good. He rips his cloak. Yeah. Goes and mourns and weeps and prays and comes back and says, and sentences him to death, saying, right. "How dare you kill God's anointed? Right. This is not your life to take." And this was his enemy. Mm -hmm. He had brought Saul's kingly garb to him, thinking he would get favor. He was lying, probably, because other part of Scripture says of that's not how he dies. But um, the the this is. Uh, Scripturally, I think it's fairly simple that it's illicit, it's prohibited, we can't do it. So why, why, is, it a, why is it a bad thing that it'd be legal? Um, we, long, um, we, don't, uh, we don't proclaim a private gospel. Um, we, though I observe that we live in a post-Christian culture, and um, we, since at least the 1970s, at law, the United States has been a very secular country. Um, uh, we still know that there are all kinds of ramifications and evil when sin is called good. Um, now, whether we use um, secular language to resist uh, legalizations of things that we know are uh, bad for people and for society, or whether I think increasingly we should use explicitly religious arguments, mm -hmm. because I think the secular arguments have not won the day. Um, they've really? they've been they've been tried time and time again, and I think we should actually take a, a note from kind of the religious minority movement, um, um, saying uh, we hold this. I mean, if you look at Orthodox Jews, mm -hmm. they never they usually don't say. Um, that this is uh, uh, this is bad based on a natural law or these rational principles that have been extracted from my faith. They say it's the halakha. <laughs> it's the halakha of right. you know the the following. Uh, same with Muslims. I think uh, Muslims get a pass on many ethical issues in the secular society because they unashamedly say, "Well, this isn't how we do it." Right. And when challenged, they just say, "That's not how we do it." Um, Christians uh, tend to want to use the humanist language. Um, that I think partly got us into this predicament. Um, so we know that there are all kinds of uh, uh, problems that soci if society begins to kill the infirm, um, the, the suffering, uh, hastening their death in such ways, and the name and call that compassion, um, then we have a perverted view of compa compassion indeed. Um, in my experience, so I have a practical I've cared for over 6,000 patients with terminal illness. I've been at their bedside. Uh, I've been with their families. I've never needed assisted suicide or euthanasia. Not once. Not once. You know, not once in order to control their pain. Not well. I wouldn't try to control. I think that's the issue. I I may um, allow. I don't. I don't put. I don't think my burden as a physician is perfection. That they have, I don't think it's uh, my goal to have a completely still, lifeless body while they're still alive. Right. 
which I think uh, increasingly there's a trend in medicine and palliative medicine that that may be the goal. Called, they kind of, we use the term terminal sedation. Yeah, terminal sedation. Sure. Now it's so got, sleep until you die. Right. So now people are calling it palliative sedation. And I do think there are some times that palliative sedation could be allowed. If someone's not eating or drinking, mm -hmm. they're, to use the Texas term, fixing to die, and that they're going to die in the next uh, uh, you know, coming hours to days, as best we know. And there's nothing you can change. Uh, uh, you, you can't change that. Um, and they have refractory symptoms. I think it's ethically permissible. But in 6,000 patients, I've maybe thought of using it twice, and I didn't. Um, I've never needed assisted suicide. If we just have a bit of patience, patients with terminal illness do indeed do die. I do think you can forego other treatments. Um, although most of my patients, they're not making a decision about foregoing. They've already, they've had surgery and it's, radiation and chemo and they're dying anyway. Yeah. There's not a big decision to make. Right. We think about everything in a big decision, but a lot of it is that um, death is, is, the, 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 is clearly coming and we're acquiescing, reluctantly accepting that death is here. That's the vast majority of the 6,000 patients I've cared for. A few have said, you know, the burden of that treatment is not worth the benefit. I, I, and I think that's consistent with the Christian understanding as long as it's not selfish. Right. I think there are burdens. Christians aren't, are, are called to suffer, suffer all kinds of burdens for the faith, but they're not called to suffer burdens that um, aren't, um, all burdens are not all, all equal. I won't go into off on that Fair tangent for yeah. too long. Now, a lot of the proponents of assisted suicide make the argument that it's actually inhumane to deny terminally ill patients that choice, particularly if, if managing their pain is a bit more challenging. Somebody like Brittany Maynard, for example, she had a, you know, this brain tumor. She was going to be afflicted with uncontrollable seizures. Um, and she chose simply to have assisted suicide, moved to Oregon to do that, just for our listeners who aren't aware of, of her situation. Um, what, what, would you, what would you say to the person who says it's just it's inhumane not to have that as an option for people? I mean, the, the simple answer would say I think it's a wrong definition of inhumane, just like I said something mm -hmm. about the wrong definition of compassion. To be truly human is to be in Christ. Um, to, to follow a humane path is to follow the path of Christ. But I think in secular argument, um, I think we can actually use the example of Brittany Maynard to give the counter potential. Um, the narrative that's often given is people need this choice in order to, be, to affirm and validate their wishes, and if their wishes aren't followed, that's tortuous. I mean, that's just torture that they're going to, they're suffering because you won't validate and affirm their wishes. That's, a, that's perverted in itself, right? But let's imagine the case of Brittany Maynard. You have a young, attractive woman who's been made the poster, uh, uh, the, the poster for assisted suicide. She seems, at the time of her illness, seems that assisted suicide should be a right. She's convinced of that. What if she changes her mind? So I, I often tell students, think about, uh, that, uh, think about the way we approach uh, burdens in medical care. If you asked Christopher Reeve, when he was 33 in Superman, to fill out an advanced directive and living will and ask, do you want to be a high cervical quadriplegic on a ventilator for the rest of your life? He'd I'm probably say no sure way. he would say no. Right. 
And when I ask an audience that question, they all say, no way. But you ask him five days after he um, uh, had his horse accident, and you say, we, Mr. Reeve, we could allow you to die, take you off the ventilator, or you can fight for this. We will try to do rehab, and we'll try to recover as much function as you can. We don't know how much you'll gain. You'll probably be on a ventilator for the, um, for the foreseeable future. And he says, I want to fight. I want life. Um, this happens in end-of-life care, too. You, you give up, especially if someone's older, um, you give them a diagnosis of lung cancer. And if you have them fill, us, fill out what they want, they'll say, well, I don't want any heroic measures. You know, I don't want to be a burden. I'm, I'm concerned. But then as they get sicker, they're more willing to accept care of others. No, that's a great point. Um, so when Brittany Maynard is making, becomes the spokesperson for assisted suicide, and as she starts getting sicker, and starts thinking, well, what if I don't want to commit suicide? Mm-hmm. Is that humane? There's actually word that she had this. Oh, is that right? That she had second she thoughts? She actually had second thoughts. Her husband on the bankroll for Compassion and Choices. Oh, I, didn't, I, I think most people probably society, don't know that. Society, I don't know when the timing was. Yeah. I, don't want to, I don't want to give a false narrative. I don't know when the timing of that was. The society looking to her, the media following her every dying um, narrative, every detail of her dying narrative, if she said, no, actually, I don't want to, what does that do to the narrative? So It's pretty, it's pretty damaging. It's damaging, yeah. I mean, so you have dystopias like Soylent Green that have this, right? I mean, the B-rate movie, the Charlton mm-hmm. Huston movie, that Soylent Green as people, is, it's not in the book, but it's an interesting, interesting cult classic movie, but an interesting book, where it talks about the societal pressure to not be a burden on society. And if that message is there, what is that? What message does that send for the disabled, for the infirm, for the elderly? If we say, really, you don't want to be a burden. You want you have this other way out. Better off dead. Better off. It it saves society. It saves the family anguish, and you get control. Well, what if I really don't want that control, but I feel all kinds of undue pressure? So I think in that kind of case, you can use secular argument. now, I think the Christian way would be so much better, that preparing the soul. I mean, we live in an, we live in an, uh, an era uh, filled with escapism. We use entertainment, we use technology, we use drugs, we use all kinds of things to escape. We're in the most prosperous culture in the history of the world, as far as financial wealth and comfort. But we are so distraught and so despondent that we always want to escape. Um, if, when, when, I think assisted suicide is kind of the ultimate escape. They're trying to control the very last bit so that they don't lose control over the final moments of their life. That they can give, um, uh, they can they, they can somehow be the captain of their ship, <laughs> the master Up until of the, the very until the very, very last. But um, I mean, there are other reasons that, that why people will choose this. But the the message. For the Christian is that you can't escape yourself. You take your soul with you in death. Um, that the soul that has been prepared, um, and this isn't a work salvation. Mm-hmm. I'm saying the soul that has been um, prepared in life, that soul goes with you. With its same proclivities. It's orientation to mm-hmm. God or orientation where the light of the Lamb becomes a consuming fire. Because one will not accept the loving embrace of God. 
if we can prepare people to prepare their souls um, for death, uh, it would be far greater. You know, Scott, it was, it's really interesting. Um, if you ask Americans how they would want to die, they're generally going to say, in my sleep and unexpectedly. Right. But the church father said, I mean, there's actually an ancient prayer that says, from an unexpected death, O Lord, preserve us. Because they considered it a blessing to know that you're going to die, that you can, that you can prepare your soul in repentance and contrition, that you're the very, at the moment of your death, you would have psalmody or the simple prayer of the publican, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, on your lips. And that that was a good death. Not dying in your sleep, unexpectedly, or being sedated to oblivion so your family is not stressed or killing yourself. I mean, the Christian notion of killing yourself, I mean, the archetype is Judas. The ancient icon of Judas, the ground is cursed around him. This is a, a horrific way of dying. Um, and uh, had all kinds of ramifications in church history as well, yeah, uh, the, yeah. when people would commit suicide. This is, Brian, this is so rich. I, I, don't, I, think, I don't know of any other physician who's as theologically well-grounded and astute as you are in applying this to the, the, the details of medical practice. And I, I suspect for many of our listeners, you know, this, this may be the first time they've heard a physician who's so theologically good. So I really appreciate the depth that you bring theologically to this. It's so, it's so well framed, so well grounded. Let me ask one one final question, if I might. Um, you, you know, in the next twenty years, we're going to have record number of people over the age of sixty-five in our healthcare system. Uh, already in Europe, we're seeing people connect advocacy for assisted suicide with this demographic yeah. landslide. Uh, uh, sort of under the under the heading of there's nothing cheaper than dead. Yeah. Uh, what what do you anticipate here? Uh, how how's the healthcare industry going to deal with this, while at the same time keeping assisted suicide, we hope, off the table? Yeah, you know, I think assisted suicide will grow, and I think voluntary active euthanasia, which I think morally is equivalent. It's not quite the same, but they're they're moral equivalents, I think. If, if I give you counsel to take something mm-hmm. and you take it yourself, there's not much different than me giving you the drug directly. I mean, there's one act of consent that you could always change your mind with suicide mm-hmm. until you take it. Um, although, after you've taken it, you could stand, still change your mind, but uh, not be able to undo it. Right. I just I think they're morally, because you're, you're definitely morally culpable in either. I think there will be a push for voluntary active euthanasia. Looking at Canada as the great experiment, um, uh, I think voluntary active euthanasia will be very much more popular in Canada than assisted suicide is in the United States. Um, because there's something about medicine blessing this, right? And if medicine blesses the suicide, that's one thing. But if medicine, you can go in for a procedure and you die, the um, medicine, um, uh, you know, I, 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 my view is that medicine become, has become a moral authority, mm-hmm. or falsely, wrongly, uh, for Americans. And the, so if you, uh, marijuana becomes good if it's medical, or um, uh, homoeroticism, or gender identity, uh, that people look to medicine for the morality instead of to the church. Right. Um, this is a problem. So I, I do think voluntary active euthanasia will will um, become legal in the U.S. But although I didn't, 
my prediction abilities. I don't have perspicacity. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't, don't claim to be a prophet. I, I don't. I don't claim. Um, uh, I was wrong in the 2016 election. I, I saw my my <laughs> my my, uh, my, uh, my predictions. I, I should probably not make as many. Um, the the silver tsunami that's hitting. Yeah, that's a good um, uh, I, A couple of things we've been told for decades that healthcare is non-sustainable in the U.S., but it keeps on sustaining. Now, we're just hitting the beginning of the silver tsunami. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're in the midst of it. Um, it's going to continue to grow and swell. Um, there is a unique kind of economic structure that um, because healthcare is becoming such a large part of our economy, that in some ways you're feeding a microeconomy mm -hmm. that well, yeah, there's a silver tsunami of increased patients, um, but there's increased nursing jobs and health tech jobs and physician jobs and insurance jobs, and there's this whole economy created mm -hmm. that I think in some ways may sustain it some way. Um, health reform, if, if you make it all under uh, you know, Medicare for all or something, I think then you start seeing the burdens of the right. European system that if it becomes a right, um, it, it may not set up the same kind of microeconomy. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I can say that there will be increasing pressures for um, putting caps on non-beneficial care. I don't think all those caps are bad. I mean, I think truly non-beneficial care should not be covered. Right. And medicine should, and you know, paternalism is a funny, funny term. I'm a potter. Um, my, I'm not a tyrannical despot. You know, I don't care what my daughters say, <laughs> but I'm a father. Um, paternalism, if it's loving and wise, is not a problem. The problem in medicine is with paternalism was it wasn't necessarily loving right. and wise. Right. And insurance companies or government regulators may not be loving and wise either. But I, uh, so in theory, I may not be opposed to um, prohibitions of non-beneficial care. But you want to be really careful who's making the rules, mm -hmm. and we should be attentive careful on, um, on those. I, I, I do think we'll have a push for um, uh, palliative care in certain circumstances. I think this is partly societal, that um, in the aging population, people, that there may be um, a subtle or not so subtle push to say, are these the droids you're looking for? Yeah, <laughs> are yeah, these yeah. the um, uh, technologies you really want? Don't Is the is this the way you want to live your life? Um, and kind of a, a societal pressure not to undergo. At the same time, we're having a technological boom where there are chemotherapy regimens that aren't making people as sick as they used to and yeah. bringing much, uh, much greater life-sustaining uh, life expansion than I would have predicted um, a decade ago even. Wow. There's a, lot, it's, there's a lot to think about here, um, especially as you know, the, the baby boomers start to age and we get, we get closer and closer to that becoming a reality. It'll be interesting to see what happens to the prevalence of assisted suicide and voluntary active euthanasia as that time comes along. Ryan, thank you so much for hanging out with us here. I so appreciate the theological depth with which you bring to the practice of medicine. I'm sure your patients are richer because of it, um, and, you, and your own soul, I think, is richer because of that, too. Well, so, you're not helping my attempt to walk in hu humility, well, but it's a joy talking with uh, you. It has been just delightful to have you with us, and uh, I hope for, for our listeners, uh, I think it's, it's going to be a while before you hear from a physician who's this good theologically. 
So thanks so much for being with us. Happy to come Really back. appreciate this. <laughs> this has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Ryan Nash, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. It's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.